You're listening to an ACA podcast. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in today's discussion. Uh, my name is Bianca Winata Putri. I'm the Public Programs Coordinator at ACA. I am Zooming in today from my living room slash home office. Uh, I am a woman in her mid-20s. I have glasses on and I'm wearing a black sweater. I'm sitting close to my computer, so you can only see my head and shoulders with white walls behind me and a red colored frame artwork, um, which is blurred through my vir virtual background. Um, there's also a, a huge monstera plant in the back as well. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging that today I'm speaking to you as a visitor on the lands of the Kulin Nations, and I'd like to extend my respects to elders past, present, and emerging of these lands, and of the lands on which you are all joining us today from. Today's Artist Talks is part of the exhibition, A Biography of Daphne, curated by Mihna Mirkan, and currently on display at ACA until the 5th of September. A few housekeeping items before we start the discussion. Please submit your questions via the Q&A tab and we'll try to answer them at the end of the session if time permits. We are also joined today by our, by our live Osan interpreters, Amber and Paul. This session is also being recorded for podcasts and video release, which will be accessible by, via ECHA's website and through your favorite podcast provider. Closed captions is also available live for this webinar, as well as for the video recording. It is now my great pleasure to welcome curator Mihna Mirkan and artists Eric, Inga, and Katie. Mihna, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Bianca, for the, for the introduction and for the uh, acknowledgement of country. Um, I do wish to acknowledge the Kulin Nations as the sovereign custodians of the land I work on. My um, warmest thanks to Inge, Katie, and Eric for their participation in this event, and of course for their contribution to the exhibition. Um, my gratitude also goes to the other artists whose work the show includes, to the lenders, to the exhibition, and to Aka for their generous support of my project. A Biography of Daphne is an exhibition about crisis and metamorphosis, um, taking as model the myth of Daphne, the nymph who turned into a laurel tree to evade the assault of the god Apollo. The show revisits and reimagines the myth by composing a contemporary backdrop for Daphne's transformation, a landscape which is animated by present-day predicaments. Perhaps by the ambivalent question, what should we become in order to continue being who we are? The exhibition focuses on the moment when one body and one order of representation is prefigured in another, an instant of corporeal and symbolic disarray when such questions echo allegorically in Daphne's paradoxical becoming. Paradoxical to the extent that it converges pathos and paralysis on subjection and agency, triumph and defeat. The biography of Daphne is therefore the biography of a point of inflection in the constitution of a figure of rupture and recomposition. In her flight from Apollo and from her human form, Daphne crosses temporal, spatial, and ontological boundaries. She becomes a tree, a photosynthetic anatomy that is capable of withstanding her captor, the god of the sun, and she becomes an image, a transformation that the show frames as a transition from an impaired visual field uh, seeing nothing in the violence of the attack to a moment of vertigo, the terror of having been engulfed by the forest. This is an abrupt shift in axis of orientation. The figure morphs with its ground 
and the portrait becomes a landscape. Finally, over the course of the remarkable iconographic history of the myth, perhaps revisited more frequently than any other story of brutality, resistance, and equivocal deliverance called by um, visual artists from Ovid's poem, The Metamorphosis, Daphne is in a permanent process of becoming contemporary. In the exhibition, these sidelines and timelines call, coil and twine in a broken syntax, a montage of, uh, um, um, sorry, a montage of, of cuts and cutaways as a modality to capture a body and an identity that is violently reconfigured. Today's event is the second conversation with participating artists uh, who are invited to introduce their work in the show in relation to some of the critical questions that underpin their practice. The first event in the series brought together Jill Magid, Ho Tsun Yen, Candice Lin and P. Staff in an expansive conversation about the figure, bodies of carbon, of hormones or of pixels. Um, a conversation about metamorphosis in contexts such as the life of the artist, and the art historical tropes that narrate continuity between work and biography, image and presence, or about metamorphosis in the spectral terrain between myth and the technologies that can reanimate and rescript old stories as encounters between digital revenants and the ghosts of colonialism. Or finally, a conversation about the co-evolution between human and plant, self and worlds traversing one another through myriad symbiosis. From the figure, which um, I would argue was the theme of our first uh, conversation, this second session turns, turns its attention to the ground, which is variously articulated in the presentations that will follow as country, as museum, or as nature, or rather not as nature, but our being within language as an attempt to fathom or ventri ventriloquize nature's silence. As Lauren Berland noted, during crisis times, the event emerges not as a thing that goes without saying, but as a genre whose conventions are stunned, disorganized, and open for change. Crisis is an emergency in the reproduction of life, a transition that has not found its genres for moving on. In different ways and within these different contexts that I briefly indicated, the contexts to, to which Daphne's myth can be extrapolated, the projects we will hear about capture crisis and metaphorical remedies, portraits of landscapes without human figures, yet uh, landscapes that are pregnant with um, human language, desires, and anxieties. Um, that's my introduction, and it is now a great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, uh, Eric Bunger, a Swedish artist, writer, and composer whose work investigates the relationship between language and concepts such as voice, body, image and nature. In lecture performances, videos, texts and musical compositions, he explores the ways in which such concepts index something mute beyond the reach of language, central voids that riddle artistic discourse and are endowed with the capacity to structure it. Eric's work has been presented in venues such as the Centre Pompidou in Paris, the Wellcome Collection in London, the Lincoln Center in New York, Kunstwerke in Berlin, and the Curitiba Biennial in Brazil. He currently holds a research fellowship at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna, where he leads a team of researchers in an investigation of the concept of voiceover. Over to you, Eric. Thank you, Mishnah. Uh, I will begin by sharing my screen. Yes, so um, my, my contribution to this uh, um, show, uh, a biography of Daphne, was, uh, is uh, focuses on 
it's called my contribution is called Nature See You. It's a video essay that focuses on footage I found of the of Coco the gorilla. Footage that I found on the internet. Uh, it was uploaded in uh, 2015 in connection with the UN conference on climate change in Paris. And I would like to begin by 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 first looking at this footage. So my first question when I approached this footage was, why have they, tra they translated her signs into broken English? So Coco uses, um, she's trained, she has been trained to use signs that um, are taken from the uh, vocabulary of American Sign Language. That is the, the sign language spoken uh, in the United States, or, uh, signed in the United States, I should say, by the deaf, deaf community in the United States. And most often her, Expressions consist of a single sign, as in this clip. Here, all she does is actually repeat the verb see, but in the subtitles, they have translated her, her sign into an entire English sentence. But one must ask oneself then, if they are ready to, to, to read an entire sentence into one singular sign, why wouldn't they present this sentence in proper English? Why would it translate it into nature see you rather, rather than nature sees you. And this is true for the whole video. They keep adding grammatical mistakes that in the, in the subtitles that don't reflect any, any mistakes that Coco actually does. And we can only speculate about why, that's, what, why that is, but the way I interpret it is that on the one hand, the people who made this video, on the one hand, they want her to speak on the other hand, they want her to, to remain an animal. That is someone who, who, who cannot speak. So therefore they have to, she has to speak like someone who cannot speak properly. And there is a, this might seem very banal, but there's a really interesting paradox going on here. I think that, uh, that um, the absolute truthfulness of her speech is dependent on her not really being able to speak fully. And, um, this absolute truthfulness is not only carried by the subtitles, it's also carried by the, the gestures that she makes. When, when she says Coco cry here, she does this by dragging her, her index fingers across her cheeks. Uh, for us, at least for us people, for us who don't, uh, who are not familiar with sign language, this gesture seems to exhibit a closer relationship to the act of crying than any word, any spoken word could ever do. So, I mean, words are conventional. The, the, the relationship, the only relationship, the only connection between the word cry and the act of crying is a pure traditional one. It's, uh, we have some, somehow it has been decided that the word cry should, should mean the act of crying. But um, Coco's gesture seems to, it's, it's, it's an image of crying in a certain sense, right? So it resembles crying. Images exhibit a, a quality that language normally doesn't, resemblance. So again, it seems as if the absolute truthfulness of Coco's language is dependent on it not really being language. And there's one last level to this. While gesturing, she also makes something else. She doesn't merely draw images in the air. She points to something. She points to her own eyes.
and she's uh, she says nature see you and here she conjures up uh, an idea of nature silently watching us as if beyond all the all her words there is uh, something about her that remains absolutely silent and uh, this silence finds its epicenter in her eyes and in the end it's not her words that is supposed to make us feel guilty but her silence so the absolute truthfulness of her speech is dependent on her not speaking at all, on her remaining silent. So in the video then we have three manifestations of <clears throat> non-language. We have uh, the animal as someone that doesn't speak. We have the image, something that isn't speech, and we have silence, which is the very absence of speech. And um, in the footage of Coco, these three elements all work together to project an idea of nature as a truth beyond words. However, since Coco somehow she has to manage, she has to get her message across to us in some way. So she still has to she still has to work with language somehow. And therefore she comes to occupy a, a very like a kind of um, absolutely uncertain position between language and non-language, between culture and nature. And when we look at her, we are continuously confronted with the question, who is speaking? Is it really Coco's voice we hear, or is, is she rather a spokesperson? Is she really a spokesperson for nature, or is she rather a spokesperson for, for the people who made this video, for the humans who made this video, who somehow speak through her? And it is this absolute uh, uncertainty uh, inherent to the figure of Coco that my video essay focuses on. And this video essay is part of a, a much larger project that I'm running, uh, a research project I'm running at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna. And um, in this project, I'm focusing on the instrument of voiceover. And one question that drives this research is, how can one create a voiceover that avoids the, the common trap of voiceover where you sort of somehow separate yourself as a voice from the image you speak of? So there is a gap between image and voice whenever voiceover is used, at least normally. And um, how can I rather than distance, distancing as a voiceover, how can I rather than distancing myself from the image implicate myself in the very argument I'm making? So if I speak about the uncertainty inherent in the figure of Coco, how can I let this uncertainty sort of bleed over into the, into the voiceover itself? So therefore, to be able to accomplish this effect in this video, I, I decided to use, instead of using a regular voiceover, I decided to outsource my voiceover to a sign language avatar. And um, such avatars are um, available online uh, in, uh, as part of applications. Then you write a text into the application and uh, this, the, the application translates this text into sign language animated sign language. Uh, and this particular one I was using, that was using I was using a, 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 a sign language app that uh, used uh, American sign language in this case. So I would like to show you just uh, the first, uh, the, the intro to the video, where the, where the sign language um, avatar introduces herself. So what happens here is that the avatar's inability to use signs properly becomes kind of a strange mirror inversion of 
Coco's inability to use science properly. So the gap between that we see in the avatar science and the subtitles comes to mirror then the gap between the science that Coco makes and, and the subtitles in, in, uh, that, that translate her gestures. Uh, and also the, the footage that, um, if, if, the Coco's, if Coco's footage gives rise to the question, who is speaking? Then the avatar gives rise to the same question. When looking at the avatar, uh, it's not clear how the viewer is supposed to understand her, her words. Is, is it I, the author, who, who speak through the avatar? Or is the avatar supposed to function as a substitute for a living human signer? Or should we perceive it as if the avatar herself is saying these words? The avatar keeps saying that Coco is a machine. But the very fact that we don't know who speaks here makes even this statement about the manufacturing of absolute uncertainties absolutely uncertain. So the avatar comes to amplify the uncertainty inherent to Coco, and Coco comes to amplify the uncertainty inherent to the avatar. Next to each other, both, both the avatar, both the voiceover and Coco comes to lose the power that has been invested in, in, in each of them, the power to speak with, with absolute certainty. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. This was quite, quite extraordinary. Thanks for the captivating, um, difficult ride. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, uh, Inge Meyer, a Dutch artist whose practice explores and enacts transitions between the familiar, between familiar and foreign environments, uh, transporting viewers between sites where nature and culture, plausible fiction and implausible fact, the distorting effects of distance or the blind spots of proximity become indistinguishable. Inge's films, photographic projects and installations have been recently presented at La Marechalerie, uh, at Versailles, Akinci Amsterdam, Bless Hall Middelburg, and the Rijks Academy in Amsterdam, where she was a resident from 2016 to 2017. Her book, The Plant Collection, on which the work she presents at Aka is based, was published by Roma Amsterdam in 2019 and was nominated for the Best Dutch Book Design Award presented at the Stedelijk Museum. Over to you, Inge. Um, yes, here I am. Uh, thank you, Michna, for that. Nice introduction and thank you, Eric, for your presentation. Um, I will share my screen too. And I'm still like with this word of uncertainty in my mind. So maybe I wanna start. I wanna start with uncertainty just because it really struck me in Eric's presentation. And it's maybe also something that really drawed me in uh, to this project and um, I thought to kind of take a 10 minute journey on how I started this project and how I'm continuing this project and maybe uh, halfway end in the exhibition where it's currently uh, turned into wallpaper. And um, Michnea also just mentioned it. Uh, I was part of a residency in Amsterdam and we went to visit the Stedelijk Museum and they gave a presentation about the archives and the library. And the librarian told me about, or told us about um, a list of plants. And somehow, I don't know, it, I magnified, magnified to, that, 
to that sentence and I was like, okay, that's interesting. A list of plants that used to have been part of the museum. And um, I went back and I asked if I could see that list and somehow, you know, I couldn't find it immediately. And then I was like, well, maybe I just look through the exhibition views and maybe I, 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 I can see some plants in there, which was already a very extraordinary idea because I'm born in 86 and I never knew uh, about the existence of uh, plants uh, as part of exhibitions in the museum. So when I went through um, the archives, I, uh, with the focus of like, let's search for plants in the exhibitions, um, I, I really was moved by their presence. And um, maybe that's why the word uncertainty was also, um, I don't know if it's kind of, but there was something about it that I really couldn't uh, understand. And there was, I don't know, I just, maybe I, I felt like the plan sometime, you know, I felt it was like a self-portrait in some way. Um, or maybe, um, yeah, like just the fact that they were there and I never knew they were there was something that I was really drawn to. But then also later on questions came of like, but how, how did, who made the decision for which plant, for example, with which artist? And um, I realized that plants been moved around. So after every exhibition, uh, plants would be relocated in a new exhibition and they would grow and somebody would take care of them. There was not so much uh, information known about it. So I thought like maybe I can interview former employees to, to you know, talk about what they remember. And this is... Um, how I uh, got in contact with um, the daughter of uh, Haye van der Ham. And he used to, ple he used to be the, uh, the plant caretaker of, uh, of the Stedelijk Museum. He actually started there as a, as a social worker or like it's social, um, I, he started there as a guard, let's say. And then um, the director discovered that he had the green thumb and ask if he uh, wanted to become the, the caretaker of the plants in the museum. And why I share this because she also kept a, a personal archive from her father. And um, within this personal archive, uh, I, I, I found a, a booklet and it was made by former employees at the time at the museum where Haye van der Ham was also part of. And um, in this uh, booklet, there was a sort of a poem from uh, the director. It was a kind of a goodbye letter. And he explained uh, in this poem, like why the plants were there and how they ended up there. So these were, of course, questions that I had, but were unanswered. And I would like to read it to you but hold on um i can't because oh i, I can't okay yeah um so 
I don't know if I gave the right context to 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 this, but uh, Willem Sandberg, he was the director of the Stedelijk Museum between 1945 and 1962. And um, in 1938, um, he was the one, like, uh, he was not director yet, but he was the one really supporting and um, uh, for almost forcing the the act of painting the museum white, you know, to undo it from the ornaments and to um, yeah, I would say make it a more democratic institute. And um, he has also been the one who brought the plants into the museum. Okay, plants connect the indoors with the outdoors. So this is written by Sandberg for Haye van der Ham. On the 5th of May in 1945, when I came back home, after two years of being on the move, all of the plants were dead, except for the switch cheese plant, which had only left one, which had only one leaf left on it. Now it covers an entire wall, thanks to cuttings from friends. It was soon joined by a whole family of African lindens. They grew fast, and when they got too big for our house, they went to the Stedelijk. That was nature's entrance in the museum. Other large-leaved plants soon followed. Mona Winter looked after them mostly, until we realized that caring for the plants was a full-time job, and the man for the job was there without our having to look for him. A small man with white hair and a pink face with a green thumb. He took care of nature's indoors for 16 years and all of us at the museum, but especially the plants themselves, say to him, thank you kindly, Father van der Ham, Sandberg. Um, oh, second. So this is uh, the plant that the director, Willem Sandberg, took from his house and placed in the exhibition space. Um, it's the first exhibition after the Stedelijk reopened. And um, one second, because I'm missing some faces here. I turned all the faces off, so I have to. Um, yeah, so it, that's that was, you know, um, after doing already three years of research, it was a it was another surprise and yeah, something that blew my mind. But at the same time, I don't know. Um, yeah, let me continue. <laughs> so. I already mentioned it before, but the plants, they move from one exhibition to the other. And this is a year later. And in the end, my whole research is based on uh, the archive, uh, the, um, the documentation of the exhibitions. And of course, the documentations of the, these exhibitions, it, the focus wasn't on the plants, but the focus, of course, was on documenting the arts. 
Um, but still, the plants, they are present. And then um, during my research, so I discovered that actually there was somebody taking care of the plants. Uh, there were people donating plants to the museum. Um, there were 39 species of plants. And they were kept and taken care of within uh, within the museum. So I was started to think like, hmm, could 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 you also see it as a collection? You know that next to an art collection, actually the museum also had a plant collection. And um, the last plant that I uh, could find in the archives was in 1983. Um, so it's they have been there, you know, after they painted the walls white for almost 38 years. And I found many photos. I can I can sh share some more. I mean, I just chose some that I. Yeah, I was drawn to, I mean, these ones, I think it almost turns a little bit like a landscape. And sometimes the, yeah, the, the plants are replaced very stylistically, you know, in, in, in this exhibition, for example, which I find very daring. Um, and here too, it becomes like almost mim mimicking a certain rhythm or a certain shape, a certain form. And within the interviews that I had with the former uh, employees, it was not, sometimes they told me it happened that a plant was just kind of left over and there was a spot left over in the exhibition. And sometimes they, uh, they rented plants. So it, the plants were really part of the exhibition and sometimes it was very curated and sometimes it was more like an intuitive kind of um, placement of a plant. And um, yeah, I thought like, I would like to find a way to um, bring these plants back into the narrative of the museum and um, together with uh, uh, Roma, uh, Roma publications, and graphic designer Roger Willems and uh, graphic designer Dong Young Lee, we made a book that shows is basically an overview of all the photos that exist in the archive of the Stedelijk that have a plant plant present in them. Sometimes it's just a leaf, very far in the back, but it's 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 a um, a remnant of their presence in the museum. And um, for, for this exhibition, a biography of Daphna, um, together with graphic designer Dong Young Lee, we designed wallpaper. And I um, have to also mention, um, yeah, well, um, oh. I don't know what I want to say, but I just, it kind of went organically. Like now we started talk about the exhibition and um, the project had had several outcomes. 
And um, I, so I was kind of not satisfied with, um, well, I realized that actually it's important to show um, uh, this work in its entirety, like to show all the plants because all of them together, for me at least, you know, it's it's about their uh, existence. It's about their uh, presence at the museum. So it wouldn't make sense for me to choose one uh, image over another or choose one plant for another plant or choose one image for another image. So um, I started to think about wallpaper and, and somehow also with, um, in the end, the wallpaper is, um, of course, it's, it has very often floral patterns, and but it's also something that at a certain moment you just accept and you forget about it. And I think something like that happened also uh, with the plants, that they were there and everybody accepted it and then they were gone. And it was also something that was accepted or, I mean, yeah, like, so to bring their presence back in, 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 in the form of wallpaper, um, made sense. <laughs> I will show a few images of the exhibition. And this is, um, oh, this is the last image uh, I want to share because during my um, research, uh, I realized that um, the director Willem Sandberg was very interested also in the MoMA and I was curious to know if the MoMA actually would also have had plans. And um, it, it is, they, they have had many, many plans, even much more than the Stedelijk Museum. And this is an overview of uh, a Ficus Lairata, which is standing in the same place and only the exhibitions change and you really see, or I mean, I see, uh, I know how difficult it is to um, take photographs from uh, uh, my own exhibitions, but you really see the photographer like struggling with the plant. So sometimes it's half on it, sometimes it's fully on it, sometimes it's just a leaf on it. And um, yeah, the project will uh, continue. Um, and I am looking forward to kind of connect the two uh, collections, the collection of the MoMA and the collection of the Stedelijk together in the future. But for now, I'm very happy and thankful to be part of uh, this exhibition and this talk. I hope um, it was kind of in a chronological order. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Inge. This was so great. Um, what a fascinating story and what a, a, a beautiful reiteration of, uh, of a beautiful book. Um, it is um, a great pleasure to introduce finally Katie West, our third um, contributor tonight. Um, Katie, Katie West belongs to the Inchibardi people of the Pilbara Tablelands in Western Australia. Her practice threads through the processes of naturally dying fabric registering the rhythms of walking, gathering, bundling, boiling water, and infusing textile materials with plant matter. Katie creates objects, installations, and happenings that invited attention to the ways stories, places, histories, and futures are woven. In 2017, she completed a Master of Contemporary Art at the Victorian College of the Arts, University of Melbourne, and she was the recipient of the Dominique Merge Gallery Award 
and the Pulse Creek Resort Indigenous Award. Her work has been presented at West Space and Caves in Melbourne, Dominique Mersch Gallery in Sydney, Tarawara Museum of Art in Hillsville, and the Center of Photography in Perth. Over to you, Katie. Thank you. Uh, so I have a little bit of a script for myself and um, in each, for each image in my presentation, I've provided a bit of a description and then from there, uh, yeah, I get some information about each of these, these works. So I'll share my screen. The image shows a rose garden overgrown with weeds, mainly tall grasses. Either side of the image and set back from the garden are two trees. On the left, a carob tree, on the right, a pine. Between the two trees, the bright blue sky of a warm sunny day peeks through. At the centre of this image is a small cream-coloured garden-esque sculpture depicting a mother carrying her baby. This statue is nestled amongst the grasses. This image is from my backyard of my home on Noongar Baladong country. I would like to acknowledge Noongar Baladong elders and community and thank them for their custodianship of the land I'm speaking from this evening. I would also like to acknowledge Bloomerang and Wurundjeri elders, community and country. So this image shows the series Wano Ground which I made in late 2018 for a solo exhibition at Caves Gallery in Melbourne. Here it is shown in the current exhibition, A Biography of Daphne. On a white wall are three artworks installed in a row, beginning on the left-hand side with the image of the first piece entitled Warna. Warna means ground in Yindjurundi language. This work is one metre square, piece of calico pinned at the two top corners uh, onto the wall. At the centre of this image is the piece entitled Hold. This piece is also one metre square. This piece is folded into a triangle and is pinned to the wall where two diagonal corners meet to form a sling or pocket. This sling or pocket holds a long straight stick. This stick is speckled with burn marks. The last work on the right of the image is entitled Holding Pieces. Pieces of various sizes uh, hang over a sash of fabric held taut between two pins. All these pieces are calico, a rough cotton fabric which is very much entangled with colonial histories across the globe. And all pieces are brownish grey in tone, naturally dyed with eucalyptus leaves and bark, collected from the ground after windy days, uh, mainly um, in uh, Nara and um, also puffball fungus. These fabrics uh, and these fabrics were dyed and configured while living in Wurundjeri country as I was working to strengthen my sense of connection to Indurundi country in Western Australia. The image shows a moment in the installation work, Gently Give Attention, which was part of the exhibition Healing Practices curated by Rachel Ciesler, shown at Bandura Homestead. In this image, two pairs of hands hover over a steel bowl filled with water. The hands on the left are rinsing a tea infuser, 
and the hands on the right are rinsing a glass uh, toned, toned yellow teacup. Swirling in the bowl of water are bits of plant matter, the flavours and smell of which had just been enjoyed as cups of tea. So making and sharing tea has followed on from working with natural dyeing. The notion of people being infused with place through what we consume as food or drink. Gently and also invites thinking about reciprocity and projecting care into the future by resetting the space, rinsing cups and infusers and setting them to dry so that they are ready for the next person to come along and enjoy a cup of tea. This final image uh, taken at Tarawara Museum art, of Art shows the work clearing, which is comprised of a long piece of silk hanging over, hanging and curving um, to form a frame around a large window at the centre of the gallery. This window views over vineyards in the Yarra Valley. Under the arc of silk fabric are various cushions arranged in two groupings on the polished cement floor on either side of the gallery space. Clearing was commissioned by Tarawara Museum of Art as part of climate, uh, Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019. The installation was designed as a space to read, listen and converse, reflecting on a global outlook that is grounded in Wurundjeri country and the bioregion in which um, Tarawara Museum of Art is situated. The work also uh, includes um, uh, textiles dyed on Wurundjeri country um, and uh, text by Wurundjeri authors, Auntie Joy Wondon, Uncle Dave Wondon, and also um, uh, uh, Dark Amy by Bruce Pascoe. So I've, I've just given a little overview of my work and um, uh, with the thought that a bit more detail can come through uh, questions and discussion. Yeah. Thank you so much, Katie. This was uh, wonderful and much appreciated. Um, we have a question from a member of the audience, which is um, um, a question that's addressed to each of you. Um, how do you find the concept of transformation playing out in your work's practice? Um, Eric, this would relate to transformation of language and understanding. Inge, this would relate to transformation of place via plants and nature. Katie, transformation in your work might mean transformation of materials. Um, would you care to respond to that, Eric? Uh, sure. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, mm, um, this work actually went through quite an interesting interpretation, like a transformation when I was working uh, with, um, when I came upon the idea, the first, it first existed as a, as a text only, and then it was actually Mishnah, uh, the curator who, uh, of uh, the show, to, who, who did, I think you, Mishnah, you decided you was because you wanted to include it somehow in the show. Was it like that? I can't really remember. I think, well, yeah, that it wasn't a decision. It was a, it was a suggestion, or rather, a question. A suggestion, yeah, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You wanted it was your suggestion, and then from from that text, sort of, it transformed into a video, and and from that suggestion from Mishnah, I, I realized, ah, oh, maybe there is some some material here for for to make a video, and then I was trying to understand why how to transform it into a video, and then my first idea was actually to use a regular regular voiceover to explain. Uh, my idea of, of, of uncertainty and the, the figure of Coco and so on. 
But I very soon realized that uh, this created automatically like a hierarchical uh, relationship between me and Coco, that, where I, I became the, the human speaking about the animal with our poor language skills and so on. So I and I wanted to create uh, like a more more equal relationship, and then therefore I decided first I thought I, I would I will I will use a, a sign language uh, interpreter to instead of a living a living person. And but in order to do that, I had to I wanted to test the idea. So then I find found this app, and um, and uh, yeah, and and I I realized or actually in discussions with my. I, Yes, I'm doing a research project recently. Uh, currently, I have a re I have a supervisor, and my supervisor said to me, "This is way too interesting. The what you have found here, the app, you should stick to that instead of the of the um, of the of a living person." And and uh, so, and also because of the fact that the app is not really able to speak in a very similar way that Coco is not able to, or not able to sign properly in the way very same way that Coco is not able to sign properly. That adds a dimension to the work, and so the. It was kind of an interesting transformation in terms of how I, mm, the, the piece really transformed uh, much more than what is regularly the case uh, for me as an artist. That uh, I went from like, from a text to a video with a voiceover to a, to a living sign interpreter to a, to a, a animated app. Uh, yeah, so it had a, it. It was it's in this way the. Um, um, the yeah the. There was a constant transformation of the work until until um, until it was shown for the first time then in in, um, in the back of in, in the exhibition. Yeah. I don't know if that answers exactly the question, but I, yeah, I thought it could be an interesting thing to speak about. It's a, it's a, it's it's a remarkable evolution that um, that your um, your idea has, has has gone through. Um, Inge, just to remind you, the the question is. Um, pertains to a possible transformation of place, in, in this case, the, the museum, uh, Stedelik or, or uh, MoMA, uh, the transformation of the place via plants and via this intrusion, very unexpected from us and very idiosyncratic from the standpoint of, uh, of contemporary museology and conservation norms of, of plants in the sacred space of uh, artistic heritage. Yeah, it's a... Um, it's a Beautiful question, and 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 the word transformation is is so magical that I was like, oh, I don't know what to answer. But this came to mind almost that the plants maybe are the opposite of the transformation in the museum because they're actually a continuation because they don't leave the. I mean, they need light, so they don't go to a depot. They stay somehow in the museum spaces, and then thinking about an exhibition that is kind of transformative in itself because it's always coming and going, at least most of the exhibition in the Stedelijk then where I think of. So something that I will think of longer. And of course, I mean, what really drawed me or what I find very fascinating is that this act of the movement of plants through the museum, which is visible within the photos because you see them years later in a different place in the museum with a different exhibition but actually they grow and they are more of a continuation so you know I don't know if that but these are some thoughts that come to mind and um very spontaneously I thought to share I don't know if that's <laughs> is that a, hmm. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a great answer. Thank you, um, Katie. Um, the question to you is concerns the transformation, the transformation of materials, and and perhaps and this is from me, but perhaps piggybacking on on the question from from the audience. Um, I was hoping that you might be able to to speak about the the, the topographic component of, of the project, um, which you describe in a in a different text about Warna slash slash ground, where the one square meter is actually the the, the smallest uh, topographic unit uh, that indexes uh, a pretty violent disposition. The um, an abstraction of of territory that um, readies the place for for disposition and um, for for politics in a sense. Yeah, so um, in terms of transformation, transformation has existed in my practice also in thinking about meditation as a way to um, calm, calm uh, myself <laughs> and, um, and human bodies uh, in the face of trauma as a result of uh, colonisation and all the way that um, manifests. Um, and... Uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, when I made Warana, I was feeling um, uh, really tussling with um, my sense of connection to my mother's country. Um, so my family did experience removal from country and uh, I grew up uh, many thousands of kilometres away from Indirundi country. So um, uh, in terms of the... Uh, thinking about units of measurement within that mix, I was um, concerned about how uh, units of measurement like that render um, uh, land into uh, property and, and capital. Um, and uh, I guess also, I, I just as a person and an artist, and uh, seeing all these. And experiencing all these concepts that uh, kind of separate separate people, separate people and non-human others, just all of these ways of categorizing the world that have um, sort of uh, come with uh, uh, not so much, not to say Western really, but um, I guess uh, ways of being that are based on capital in this extreme mode that we experience now in the, for the last few hundred years. Um, so uh, it, it's both a personal thing, but also uh, of wanting to uh, understand my connection to country from wherever I am. And really for, as a result of making that work, I was like, my, my body is a product of Indirundi country. So many lineage um, generations um, living there uh, that separation is kind of ludicrous in a way, even though I haven't uh, lived there myself. But um, uh, within, uh, yeah, and through the process of making the work, I kind of really pinpointed that it's this larger narrative of uh, that's part of assimilation policies in Australia of removing people and then uh, the idea was you're disconnecting people from their country and culture and, and that's it. And um, I guess uh, it was going from kind of buying into that story as a younger person and then 
uh, gathering a bit more knowledge and then going, well, actually this this um, this story just has no no legs. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, um, so much, Katie. I think we have um, we have time. Um, we have time for uh, one more question, which um, comes from from Bianca, um, and reads: um, How do you find your work expanding or or growing after after the current iteration? So, in a sense, uh, I think I think Inge has begun to speak about this, um, indicating how her research will uh, will develop, uh, moving from Amsterdam to New York and surveying the ways in which. A plan collection was constituted um, or negotiated um, at at MoMA, but uh, perhaps this would be an occasion to to elucidate the ways in which um, the the conceptual infrastructure of the project will also develop with this topographic shift. Um, Katie, in, in in your case, perhaps you could you could discuss the ways in which the topographic, perhaps the topographic element that you've spoken so so touchingly about um, in your in your answer. Um, might might inform projects that are in in progress, um, and and Eric, you've also touched upon this. Um, speaking about a, a corpus of works that look at at voiceover, I know that they will be quite quite fascinating, and and perhaps you could give us a few hints as to how this preoccupation with the space between the image and its various narrators or its various interpreters will generate new forms. In, uh, in in upcoming projects. Sorry, were you speaking to me? I couldn't. <laughs> oh, was was uh, yeah. I, I mean, um, per perhaps perhaps Eddie can start because we've yeah. we've actually moved in that in that order yes. throughout the event. So Eric, Inge, and Katie, yeah. thank you. Sorry for the. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can just describe very briefly that how the, that, so yeah so this what I'm trying to do is to in my in my work since uh, since I started this research project uh, two years ago is to um, to kind of dislocate the, the way nor voiceover functions normally where you have a very um, as I said before a very kind of on top position on top of the image and you somehow and my idea is basically that um, the voiceover in a certain way hides the image it's it's sort of uh, rather than i mean the normal way the to look upon voiceover is that the voiceover gives gives voice to the image but the way i see it is that it's exactly the other way around that the voiceover actually silences the image it's somehow you know you have this idea that what what sort of guides my work is this idea that the common idea that um uh, an, a picture says more than a thousand words this is kind of a um, a common trope, right? Today, or not just today, but since I don't know, since at least hundred years, and and then then uh, this idea, what what I want to do, like what this seems to sort of lift up the the image, but actually what it does is sort of the silence of the image because the the the, the image speaks. It speaks precisely because it doesn't speak somehow. It's somehow so. This is the voiceover. Uh, is able to use the image and 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 forces the image to say more than thousand times what it can say somehow, but it only on condition that the voice that the image that the voiceover speaks for the image, so so to say. So this is my 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 pro, my my research is about trying to find different different strategies for how to disable that uh, that mechanism. 
so this is the first what the the, the work uh, Nature Sea that I show in the a biography of Daphne exhibition is the first uh, um, try to make this happen somehow to try to to see how I can how I can um, uh, put like a yeah to make the the apparatus of voiceover not work the way it's supposed to do so that you you don't find this you don't get to this certainty that the, because the the voiceover is supposed to also kind of deliver something that comes from outside what you, it's difficult to question the voiceover because it comes from nowhere. It's a bit like the voice of God in that sense that it uh, it's not doesn't never appear. Just like God never in the Christian or the Judeo-Christian God never really reveals himself. Uh, so does the voiceover never reveals itself to, to the viewer. And therefore it can't really be questioned. It comes like the voice of the voice of science or the voice of, you know, something like that. And, and this is precisely the type of voice that I want to try to find different ways to to, uh, yeah, to disable. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Eric. Um, Inge. Yeah, oh, I, I was, I, I also had a question for Eric maybe, but um, I don't know if there's time for that because I was thinking about the image. The image is so, um, you know, it it makes you such a spectator when you look at Coco, and it it's when you talk about silence, and it's so, um, yeah, it is really uncomfortable. Like, and I don't know if there's, yeah, I just came to mind like when when you talk about that's the silence, yeah, that makes it very somehow it makes it extremely confronting, um, and if there's also space for that confrontation. Um, of well, but maybe I um, I don't know if that's. Uh, okay, I guess yeah. yeah yeah, but I, I think I I think I understand what you mean. You mean like a confrontation with something, um, um, something uh, how to say. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, um, well, I got a confrontation with what with with. Um, with yourself, because like when you when you look at. Him and 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 I hear what you say when this this they, when they try to make this la language or like fill in and this it all feels that this is kind of put on top of it. But you really mm -hmm. confronted with your. I mean, I I feel like confronted with myself when I look at it. I, when I look at him, you know, or I think it's a him. Her, yeah, it's her. Yeah, it's yeah her. her. Okay, I'm sorry. It's well, it's <laughs> when I look at her, like I feel very confronted with myself. It's almost like it bounces back. You know, it's like mirroring, like me looking at at her doing something so extremely um, odd. You know, like almost that. And then with even this 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 strange interpreted language, like it is all very confronting. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm maybe. Yeah, um, no, that's a good. It's a good question. I, I think that the the what 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 makes me interested in the in particular in this video is that it's not just about what I'm interested in. It's not just about Coco herself, right? It's about how Coco in some ways, because of our wish to, for, for this, we, there's it's like, it, the video contains kind of a, a search for some kind of lost object or like a lost, some, some, something, something pure beyond the limits of language. Just, that's, the nature suddenly finally speaks up and there must be a position where nature can, can speak without any, any interference from language, you know? And 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 I think that that is not just that uh, thing is not just something we find. I mean, it, we also find it in ourselves somehow. This this kind of 
search for this pureness, right? And and uh, and I mean, we are in a certain sense, we are like Coco in a certain sense. I mean, when when they made this experiment with Coco, I thought it was curious that they they were saying kept saying the researcher who researchers who were taking care of her and teaching her to speak, they were saying that um, that uh, she that um, she didn't uh, the the, res- the 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 project. They were, they were trying to show, see if she would teach her offspring to speak, like naturally, if she would teach her offspring. But she didn't do that. So that, so that, okay. So then they say, okay. So that that's, that shows that somehow there's something that separates humans and and animals because because humans would do that. But but I always thought, why didn't they just tell her to do that? You know, because like if like we, I think we're all told somehow to 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 teach our 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 offspring to speak, right? We're all like. I mean, it's obvious. Society tells us you have to teach your your child to speak, and there's like it's very it's a lot of. I didn't know the word offspring. I first time I hear it. Okay, like, yeah, our children. Offspring. I mean, we we, yeah. we are you know we are supposed to teach yeah. our children. If you don't teach your child to speak, you will they will take your child away, right? So I mean, so why didn't? So I thought it was curious this thing that they didn't tell her to do that, so that somehow they separated her already from the start from that process. Where so so it was always already implied in the in the product itself in the that research product around Coco herself that she was not really able to enter language properly somehow which is so, the, so what i mean is that we're well, all that like kind of language right i mean it's it's a certain yeah yeah uh, human language certain I mean. language I mean, they, they were, yeah, yeah 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 i mean yeah but but uh, now I, I, yeah i'm not saying anything about animal language or anything i'm just saying that the product sort of uh, we're dealing with what's dealing with with human language so what the, the the curious thing there is that um, I mean we we are in a certain sense same as Coco that we are also taught to speak we are also it's also forced upon us that's what I'm trying to say speech is I also hear. forced upon us and that's why I think that Coco becomes in, interesting more interesting than like when then you what you first see maybe on the surface level that she's actually sort of mirroring us in her in in this terrible condition we are in where we cannot really say no to language. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's something I have to think about also, and um, um, yeah. I, so I still think have... you just to reiterate the the, the question was uh, concerned. The Bianca's question concerned the um, the growth and expansion of your um, plant mm-hmm. methodology. Um, so potentially, I mean, if I if I may, Bianca to kind of elaborate the, mm-hmm. the, the context, um, perhaps um, developing new instruments in, in dealing with um, with the, the plants that were gathered and and, and shown at, at MoMA in relation to the, the format into under which you have, within which you have assembled the plant collection of the Stederic Museum in Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 I will, I mean, continue. It maybe seems like, yeah, I, I, I will continue. And I still feel I would like to give uh, value to, um, to, to this, this history, you know, that um, also existed in the MoMA. And um, I mean, even within the context of, of some employees, like they actually have no idea and I, yeah, I think it's something. I mean, at least I like. I feel I f- I feel for it. I care for it. So um, 
I would like to um, also, I mean, kind of like cheesy, metaphorically speaking, would like to bring that to towards the light, you know, to, um, uh, yeah. So I will continue in a moment and, and, and I am already. And what kind of form that will shape up in, I am not uh, so sure of, but or maybe I am. I would like to have a make book. You know, maybe it's much more concrete than it's. A, I would like to make a book, but it's also, of course, a bit complicated. Like there's around 600 images, and well, so um, it's practical. Like there's also a very practical side to that. Uh, but yeah, well, I, I actually, I actually should know the answer to this to this question, and I realize listening to you now that I don't. Um, are there were there photographic exhibitions in which exhibitions of photographs? in which plants were, were present, thus producing a, a, an interesting, for, for me, interesting uh, intersection of, of photography of, and photosynthesis. I mean, the media, the, the ways in which plant and, plants and photographs could be said to exist within the medium of light would have made mm. as interesting uh, a convergence as there is between a, a Swiss cheese plant and a Mondrian painting. Yeah, I like that thought. No, it's very true. Actually, in the moment, there's a lot of, of photo exhibitions with plants. Okay, so, okay. So yeah. that perhaps, yeah, this yeah. It happens across the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank, thank you, Inge. Um, Katie, um, the, either the, the, the topographic or the, the, the process of, um, of natural dyes that you apply to your, your textile materials and interlocutors as um, as a site for future evolutions in in the foreseeable future in upcoming projects yeah um i suppose uh natural dyeing is still very much a part of my practice um i suppose i do uh spend a bit more time thinking about it as a metaphor for working and doing so walking and collecting observing um waiting um that sort of thing uh but i've also um uh been using more i guess found fabrics and synthetic fabrics and um kind of uh realizing that uh i guess polyester and all these sorts of things are plastic and uh um are still connected to plants um that existed a very long time ago so um i guess the 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 story of these materials has expanded quite a lot and um i get initially um i kind of uh felt like because of my understanding where i come from and um sort of um uh, I felt like I had very limited materials to work with. So natural dyeing seemed like a natural sort of thing to do and so did working with calico. And, um, yeah, reflecting back on that now, it, it's, um, yeah, not uh, such a restricted way of um, understanding myself and what I could work with but kind of, yeah, points to the bigger bigger issues. Um, but, um yeah, with looking at found fabric, um, synthetic fabrics, and also thinking about um, then going back into that family history and thinking about how um, resourceful my grandmothers were living on stations and reserves and town camps and, um, uh, yeah, using materials to make make homes and clothes and 
that sort of thing. So um, just expanding the story a bit, but then uh, so that's kind of the background to it, background story, but then these are the materials that I'll go with into a gallery space or um, creating a, a happening with others um, it's not necessarily about that history at all, but about just about connecting or, or thinking about um, whatever conversations need to be had at that time. Thank you so much, Katie, for that um, great, uh, generous answer. Um, Bianca, over to you for, for the concluding remarks. Um, thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, um, Eric, Inge, and Katie, for your, um, for your great contribution to this, uh, to this conversation. Um, thanks very much to thank you very much also to our audience. Over to you, Bianca. Thank you, Mehna. Um, and thank you everyone for a really excellent and engaging discussion. Um, so I just wanted to close by well thanking you guys. Thank you, Mehna, Eric, Inga, and Katie um, for your wonderful presentations and discussion today. Um, uh, we would also like to thank Amber and Paul for inter interpreting our event this um, evening and to all of you for joining us today. Um, so for more information about our upcoming public programs at ECHA, please visit our website at echa.melbourne. Um, this recording will be up soon as well as a, both a podcast and a video recording. Um, thank you again, everyone. Hope you have a lovely evening. And for Eric and Inga, have a lovely rest um, of your day and afternoon. Um, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thanks, everyone.